0: On Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihara Zazon.
1: And I'm Khalil Bendib. This week we will talk with Evren Ojikin, the director of new plays at the Golden Thread Productions Theatre Company, about Reorient 2017, which kicks off on November 17th. The festival features 38 artists from Armenia, India, Iraq, Iran, Japan, Lebanon, Palestine, Syria... Tunisia, Turkey, the United Kingdom and the U.S. But first we speak with Gilbert Ashkar about the current situation in Lebanon in light of the abrupt resignation of Prime Minister Saad Hariri from Saudi Arabia. Gilbert Ashkar is a professor of Development Studies and International Relations at the School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London and the author of several books including Morbid Symptoms, Relapse, and the Arab Uprising. I started by asking him about the unusual situation Lebanon finds itself in.
2: Basically, Saad Hariri has uh, never been more than a pawn from the Saudi perspective in the Lebanese situation. From the beginning, even his father was prime minister of Lebanon, repeatedly uh, from the early 90s until... uh, Until his assassination in 2005, his father was a key figure in a period when Lebanon was ruled on the basis of an agreement involving the Saudi kingdom and the Syrian regime, and of course, Washington behind all that. The son took over, basically he has no more uh, political autonomy, or actually even less than his father had in this regard. It is certainly uh, surprising that someone resigns from another country, but at the bottom of it, that's closer to the truth than doing it from Beirut.
1: What kind of leverage does Saudi Arabia have on uh, Hariri, if that's what happened, to force him I to resign? The and, the and Hariri, to?
2: Yeah, the Hariri made their money in the Saudi kingdom, The father lived there for a very long time. He was given, uh, and his family, Saudi citizenship, which is something relatively exceptional. He was sent back to Lebanon, or he went back to Lebanon in order to play a political role, basically representing Saudi interests in the country. The whole Hariri family is very much indebted to the kingdom and dependent on the kingdom. Their basic, their main interests are there. That's how he is dependent on them.
1: Yeah, but do they have so much power that they can actually fire him and force him no, to... Of
2: course, of course, of course. And humiliate know? him? Lebanon, basically, you had two countries dominating uh, Lebanese politics until the Syrian civil war which uh, weakened one of the two, which is uh, Syria. Mm. But uh, before the Syrian civil war, uh, and, of course, before uh, even more before uh, the withdrawal of uh, Syrian troops from Lebanon in 2005, Syria would remove and install in government whoever uh, they wanted, and the Saudis had the leverage over the Hariris, basically. To protest against the single uh, formal aspect of Hariri being held in in the Saudi Kingdom, for me, is dealing with an absolutely secondary issue because, in fact, Lebanon has never been really independent, and that has been the case
1: for very long. How significant is the fact that Hariri, who is maybe still technically prime minister, since uh, his resignation hasn't been accepted yet by the president, How significant is it that he's at the same time a citizen of another country? Is that accepted in a country like Lebanon?
2: Of course, no country would accept that in general. But that has been the case. Whether you have citizenship or not, this is really not the important matter. The important matter is that all these politicians, they depend on foreign powers. I mentioned Syria and the Saudi kingdom. Of course, in the case of Hezbollah, Iran is the most important reference, although Hezbollah has uh, probably uh, an autonomy in defining its political line in Lebanon, because the Iranian regime does not feel any need of directly interfering in that regard, because they have full confidence in Hezbollah. But the dependence of Hezbollah on Iran is is an obvious fact, very high dependence. Basically, there are hardly any independent political force in Lebanon among the main uh, political players.
1: But even on the surface, I mean, as you said, not many countries would accept having a president or a prime minister who's a dual citizen, but it seems in Lebanon quite prevalent, especially among the elites. No, the
2: citizenship is not something exception. There are many countries in the world where even in Eastern Europe, for instance, some of the mm. politicians recently there were people who had... In the past, uh, migrated to the United States and have U.S. citizenship. Mm. The same applies to several other cases, I'm sure. So that's not a legal matter. You can be a president of a country or prime minister in a country and uh, having had previous citizenship, if the laws allow for multiple citizenships. And many countries allow that. Right. Y- you may have absolutely no other citizenship and be just a pawn. You right, know, and right. You have so many of these. So the problem is not the formal one. The problem is the substantial one. Substantially, these are forces that have no real autonomy, and the country has no real political independence. And the country, Lebanon, has been for very long the theater of regional wars, international wars, and all that. I mean, even many decades ago, for instance, the president of the country was always determined by a regional and international wheeling and dealing, you know, not by uh, local politics.
1: All parties in Lebanon have apparently found something they can agree on a past week, at least on the rhetorical level, and that's demanding the return of Hariri to Lebanon, which yeah, would stand as a, a symbol of Lebanese sovereignty. What is your assessment on the reaction of these different political parties To this development?
2: Uh, I'm not convinced of that. I think the traditionally anti Hariri people are those who are now most enthusiastically excited about asking for his return. And uh, that is. In a sense, uh, it's quite hypocritical, because they have absolutely no esteem whatsoever for what uh, Saad Hariri has been, and for good reason, I should say. No, this is just a local um, political game. That's not important. All that is not important. The important thing is that the Saudi kingdom has decided to stop cooperating with Iran, as they see it, in uh, governing Lebanon they see Lebanon as a country which is dominated by Hezbollah. That means Iran behind it. Given the evolution in Syria appears as favorable to Iran in the recent period, the Saudis are seeing it, feeling more and more that Iran is gaining ground. Now, with the Trump administration very much pushing for a hard attitude against Iran. They are just uh, escalating in their turn, and, uh, and that's why they decided to stop that. They don't want their men in Beirut to cooperate in the government, to share any responsibility in the government. And at the same time, they ask their uh, citizens to leave the country. So this is creating a very high tension in the country. because. This is a country that managed to survive economically over the decades of war and crisis and all that, but it is now threatened with a severe economic crisis because of the Saudi
1: attitude. The Lebanese economy is heavily dependent on the influx of tourists and investment originating from the Gulf countries. Do you think Saudi Arabia has enough power to strangle it economically if it decides... To have sanctions against Lebanon, which sectors of the economy are impacted by Saudi capital?
2: Well, the Saudi would act with the Emirati in this regard, probably. Hmm. They have several uh, possible leverages. One would be to withdraw whatever capitals they have still in Lebanese banks, another would be to block uh, the sending of remittances by the migrant workers, the Lebanese migrant workers who are working in the Gulf, they also, by removing their support to the Lebanese economy, they can put the Lebanese economy in a very difficult situation because it has been using this kind of guarantee offered by rich Gulf countries in getting loans and the like on the international scene. If the Saudi kingdom carries on with this uh, attitude of refusing to help the situation in Lebanon and attributing Lebanon to Hezbollah's and Iran's responsibility, this can have very, very serious consequences.
1: For a year before this crisis, Lebanon had finally managed to put together a national unity government with all the different factions, and Michel Aoun, a Christian ally of Hezbollah, was picked as yeah. president. Up until this fresh new crisis, how was that government functioning for this fleeting period of a year, in light of the continuing tensions between pro-Iran and anti-Iran factions in the
2: government? That came at the time when the Saudis, under the Obama administration, because again, Hariri depends on the Saudi Kingdom, the Saudi Kingdom depends on on Washington. Everyone has somebody dominating them until you arrive to the overlord of all, who is based in Washington. Under the Obama administration, the Saudis were on a, let's say, more moderate kind of position, which allowed, which made possible this agreement over Lebanon in order to spare Lebanon the impact of the regional crisis and the war in Syria, especially that you had a massive inflow of refugees, Syrian refugees, into Lebanon, representing, according to some estimate, close to one-half the population of Lebanon, which means that in present Lebanon, one-third of the people are Syrian refugees. So this is what led to this compromise, which the saudis at that time approved but since then you've had a change in washington a shift from a president who was essentially betting on the moderates in iran and believing that by having a engaging attitude uh, he could change things to a president and a team who consider iran public enemy number one iran is probably the only issue on which the Trump administration are unanimous. That is, all these guys, including this former uh, military men who surround Donald Trump, the only issue there on which they all agree with Donald Trump is Iran. One thing, hard attitude to Iran, including people like the present Secretary of Defense, who illustrated himself in considering the Obama attitude as too soft on Iran when it was in place. So that's basically what is behind the shift. The shift started first a shift on the attitudes towards Qatar and the Muslim Brotherhood, which led to this crisis among Gulf countries that followed the visit by uh, Donald Trump to the Saudi kingdom. The next step is what they're doing now, and all this on a backdrop of uh, war in Yemen and war in Syria.
1: Before I ask you the obvious question, which is what is the source or the major source for this obsession with Iran and Washington, I wanted to ask you for more on what you just said a minute ago, which was that the influx of refugees, the huge influx from Syria, somehow led to the the new coalition in power before this resignation from Hariri. How did that contribute to the power struggle in Lebanon? How did that affect the balance of power?
2: No, it did not in the sense that there's no interference of these refugees. What I meant is that because this crisis of Syrian refugees is also a problem for Europe as well because if they are not kept in Lebanon... They would, like many of those who went to Turkey, end up in Europe, trying to get into Europe with all the political crisis that surrounded the issue of the influx of Syrian refugees in European countries. It's one of the factors that made the Obama administration seek some way to unblock the crisis in Lebanon and favor this compromise government that Hariri headed as prime minister. That's what is now basically finished, because Riyadh, that is the Saudi kingdom, is no longer interested in playing this game.
1: But how is a small country like Lebanon, which has, I think, three or four million native Lebanese...
2: Uh, Inhabitants and uh, right. that's why the estimates of the number of uh, Syrian refugees as being close to 2 million. Right, and plus uh, the Palestinians. That you have 50% added to the existing population. How is Lebanon a-
1: able to function at all with this disproportionate influx into, yes, it, into absolutely. its country?
2: That's a, a good question. Well, they are kept, most of them, in the Bekaa Valley. There are some, uh, of course, international funding and the rest, but uh, many are also inserted in petty activities in the Lebanese economy, and that creates uh, tremendous pressure actually on everything, including prices, as you may imagine, jobs, and the rest. And uh, this also led to some xenophobic reaction among Lebanese towards the Syrians, although one should say, to be fair, that. Uh, compared to what you could have in any country confronted with such a massive influx of refugees, it has remained relatively moderate and under control until now, not translating into any kind of movement like those, for instance, we had in Europe uh,
1: as a result of the... the It's remarkable. It's remarkable, the resilience of this country. Lebanon is the only country in the Middle East, other than uh, Israel now, that has a diaspora that is larger than itself in terms of population cumulative wealth.
2: Yes, it's one of those diasporic uh, countries like Greece, uh, Ireland with more people actually, much more people of Lebanese origin abroad than Lebanese in Lebanon.
1: Right, is that partly what has allowed it to weather so many uh, economic storms and political crises over the decades? Is that part no, of No, a... not really, not mm. those
2: who are far away, but the Lebanese migrants in the Gulf that's different because this is temporary migration unlike migration to the Americas or Mm -hmm. to Australia or to sub-Saharan Africa the migrants that are most important for the Lebanese economy are those in the Gulf countries monarchies in the Saudi kingdom and the rest, you have a lot of Lebanese involved there in various kinds of activities. Their remittances, the remittances they send back to Lebanon are a major factor in the Lebanese economy. If that were to stop, you would have an extremely deep crisis in Lebanon. The economy would
1: collapse. So it's not comparable to the type of support Israel gets from the Jewish diaspora in this country. No not at all.
2: Actually, there's nothing comparable in terms of organization and solidarity among the Lebanese diaspora abroad. And many of them are assimilated in the countries to which they migrated and have little, if any, uh, link to the country of origin of now their grandparents, because we are speaking of a migration which started in the 19th century. And
1: 20s. Hezbollah went from, at some point, a quasi-pan-Arab hero after the 2006 war, despite its alliance with Iran, to a much more openly sectarian force, unconditionally and openly allied, overtly allied with the theocracy in Iran and the genocidal dictatorship of Assad. Israel next door must be quite pleased at this evolution and the further fragmentation of Arab forces that were potentially able to resist Israel's expansionism. And now we have the two hegemons in the area, Saudi Arabia and Israel, quasi-allying themselves. How is Lebanon affected by this evolution?
2: This has been going on for a very long time. I mean, the Saudis, even at the time of their... Hostility to Nasser, when you had Nasser, uh, president of Egypt between 1954 and 1970, and became the main leader of Arab nationalism in the period of its left wing radicalization in the 60s, you can be sure that for the Saudis, Israel was a de facto lie. The same goes for the Jordanian monarchy and the rest. Uh, These regimes have had direct or indirect, this is secondary, but they have had relations with Israel throughout their history. This hasn't yet shifted to an open kind of alliance, although it might, it might, but I'm not sure it's in the interest of the Saudis to do that, because precisely they are engaged in this confrontation with Iran, and Iran is outbidding, has been outbidding them for a very long time, actually, on the issue of Israel. They might do it, but that would be rather short-sighted politically. I would say that it's more in their interest to continue this cover relation and reliance on Israel as a de facto ally than any direct connection. As for Lebanon, this is not something new. The Saudis have been like this for long. So this is not what is affecting the situation in Lebanon. When it comes to Israel, yes, There is a higher threat now of Israeli war on Lebanon due to this escalation of Washington and Riyadh against Tehran. That is for the first time you have such a hardline attitude in Washington against Iran. And as I said, this is the only issue on which there seems to be some consensus. And on the other hand, you have the Saudis and actually their allies seeing the spread of Iranian influence and direct expansion of Iranian power in the region as a very big threat. So they would definitely welcome an Israeli action that would contribute to stopping this, as they would see it. That's why you have had a sharp increase in articles over the last few days about possible Israeli strike in Lebanon or maybe in Syria, but one aimed essentially at Hezbollah or maybe even at Iranian influence in general. So this is becoming more likely. And, and of course, if this were to occur, this again would create a tremendous crisis in Lebanon and the whole region.
1: Since the civil war started in Syria, Israel's been able to attack Syria with impunity to try to stop any and all arms shipments from Iran to Hezbollah.
2: Israeli attitude has been one of allowing Hezbollah to uh, go to Syria. If the Israelis didn't want that, they would have signified that this is a red line that they would not tolerate Hezbollah to cross. They basically let Hezbollah get involved in Syria because they actually were happy to see Hezbollah bogged down in the Syrian war. Yes. At the same time, they kept observing very closely and striking at any action that they would see could endanger or represent a potential risk to Israel, and that means essentially close to the occupied Golan, the occupied Syrian Golan, or even whatever, militarily speaking, could represent any qualitative breakthrough for Hezbollah through Syria. Note that they are striking the Israelis, uh, targets in Syria, in a country where you have a massive deployment of Russian land-air missiles.
1: That means
2: that the Israelis are striking in Syria with Russian green light. And of course, this is uh, no big surprise given the warm relation between Netanyahu and Putin, between Russia and Israel. This shows you how complicated and entangled the situation is in this part of
1: the world. So how has this terrible tragedy in Syria, 1,500, at least 1,500 soldiers from Hezbollah killed, how does this affect the balance of power in southern Lebanon should Israel decide to strike again like it did in 2006. I mean these are
2: military secrets right. which are well preserved uh-huh. and it's true that Hezbollah lost a lot of men in Syria. How much this affects Hezbollah its force in general I don't know. On the other hand you can say that Hezbollah having been involved in one more war has acquired more fighting capacities by doing that. The Israelis, anyhow, having had the experience of 2006, in which they did not achieve any of their objectives, one can expect them, if ever they were to engage in a new military operation, one can expect them to be innovative, because they won't repeat the same pattern. They would need to do something else. And for that, you can read a lot of articles, with all, all sorts of scenarios. I don't know what will happen if it happens. But, yeah, the situation is extremely tense, and uh, everybody is very worried in the region. I just came back from Beirut yesterday.
1: And coming back to Lebanese politics, how has this Hezbollah intervention in Syria affected its influence and the support it enjoys among the Lebanese? Because, remember, they were used to portray themselves as this national force,
2: um, d- just defending
1: against a foreign well, invasion. Well, I, I think you you hinted at that yourself
2: when you said that the image of Hezbollah shifted from one of a nationalist organization to a sectarian one, which is true to a large extent. Until the Syrian war, the image of Hezbollah was still one of an organization seen mostly through its role in fighting Israel. This started changing when you had the issue of the Syrian withdrawal from Lebanon with Hezbollah supporting the Syrian presence. And then you had a gradual shift in Lebanon after 2008 when Hezbollah for the first time deployed its troops in a way that was a threat, a direct threat to other Lebanese forces rather than anything related to Israel. The big shift was the involvement of Hezbollah in the Syrian war. And there, of course, whatever justification Hezbollah gave to that for the Lebanese public opinion, especially those who are not the traditional constituency of sectarian basis of Hezbollah, and even more so for the Arab public opinion in general, there has been a dramatic collapse in the prestige of Hezbollah, which is no longer seen as a hero in fighting Israel, but merely as a tool of Iranian policy, in the same way that Shia militias in Iraq are.
1: Lebanon has been described as a confessional state, a system that emerged in the wake of the country's independence from France in 1943. One interesting facet of this was Michel Aun, who's an interesting crossover type of a figure. Tell us briefly how his relationship with Hezbollah, being himself a Maronite, I'm correct, a Maronite Christian.
2: The division among political forces based on a Maronite constituency after 2005, that occurred 2006, when Michel Aoun, who until then has been someone outbidding everybody in opposition and who had even launched what he called a liberation war against Syria in 1989, when uh, he assumed power, this own, uh, who left the country in 1990 and fearing uh, his arrest by Syrian troops, came back after the withdrawal of Syrian forces and attributing to himself the mass movement that happened in 2005 and all the protests that led to the withdrawal of Syrian troops from Lebanon. And then, one year after, he, to the surprise of everybody, turned coat completely. He made a deal with Hezbollah and became their ally, and the ally of the Syrian regime since then. As for the reason for that, nothing related to any uh, high philosophical values. It's just sheer opportunism. This guy definitely wanted to be president, and as the forces of Hariri and the rest were not willing to uh, grant him this favor, He saw that the way he could get to it would be by aligning with Hezbollah and knowing how important and massive Hezbollah and the Shia, how important they are. And so his bet was that he would become president in this way. And he achieved that. He became president. That meant also a split because he has popular support among the Maronites. So the Maronites are divided and have been divided since... 2006 in the Lebanese political game, where you have sectarian forces and where the main uh, divisions have become Sunni versus Shia, whereas it was during the Lebanese war, Muslim versus Christians. Now it has become uh, between Muslims. And the Christians, in this regard, became split between the two Muslim camps, so allies of the Sunnis and allies of the Shia forces. That's how it looks. Of course, this is a very schematic, but that's how it looks for the general observer.
1: So it's not strictly a confessional system; it's really a geopolitics. Uh, have a lot n- to do with no,
2: that. that means that the the division is no longer Muslim Christian. It's Muslim Muslim. It's Sunni Shia, and the Christians are divided along this uh, line: that is, allies of the Sunni forces, allies of the Shia forces.
1: The Sunni Shia. Split that is so overemphasized in the West also can be more interesting if you look at geopolitics. Period. I mean, between Saudi Arabia and Iran, not necessarily between two visions of uh, faith, in my opinion. The last question I want to ask you was about Saudi Arabia. With the advent of a young and brash new crown prince, this country seems to be overreaching perhaps in its attempt to assert its hegemony in the region with a war in Yemen, an embargo in Qatar, involvement in Syria, and now this abrupt move in Lebanon, not to mention a first ever effort to consolidate power in very few hands within Saudi Arabia to boot an ambition to reform the economy of that country drastically. Do you have a sense that Prince bin Salman maybe will be able to juggle all these balls successfully?
2: I think he's playing with fire, basically. He's playing with fire, he's overreaching, certainly overestimating his capacities. He is someone who doesn't seem to take heed of even his own experience, because when he came to power, that is with his father in early 2015, he was made minister of defense, and he hadn't reached the age of 30, he uh, launched the war in Yemen believing that it would be a short war in which they would achieve victory very, very easily. And the result was a catastrophe. I mean, they got bogged down in Yemen, and the humanitarian consequences of that war have become absolutely huge, with cholera spreading there and all that. It's nightmarish. Despite all that, when Trump came to power, he shifted from the line of unifying the Sunnis, all Arab Sunnis, that they had pursued into one of clashing with Qatar, clashing with the Muslim Brotherhood, compromising their collaboration in the war in Yemen, and other issues. So he is basically shooting himself in the foot. And now he's opening this confrontation in Lebanon, which will basically weaken his allies. That is, he is weakening Hariri, imposing what they impose on Hariri. As I told you at the beginning, that the way Hariri resigned is secondary. But in terms of uh, discredit of what the influencer represents in Lebanon, this was quite big. So, yes, uh, basically, this man is uh, playing with fire. He's playing with fire within his country. And you can be sure that the years ahead or the months ahead will see a lot of upheaval in the kingdom or regionally.
0: Gilbert Ashkar is a professor of Development Studies and International Relations at School of Oriental and African Studies at the University of London, and he's the author of many books, including Morbid Symptoms, Relapse in the Arab Uprising. He spoke with Khalil Bendib from Pacifica Radio. This is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. On November 17th, Bay Area Theatre Company Golden Thread Productions Reorient 2017 Festival returns to San Francisco with thought-provoking performances from or about the Middle East. The festival features artists from Armenia, India, Iraq, Iran, Japan, Lebanon, Palestine, Syria, Tunisia, Turkey, United Kingdom, and the U.S., My name is Kate Boyd, and I am designing the sets for Reorient 2017. I want to create a space for the whole evening so that when they come in and there's a feeling set on stage for what the evening's going to hold, and that it's interesting to look at, exciting, evocative, and then that it can accommodate in interesting ways the six different plays.
1: My name is Susanna Martin and I am one of the directors for Reorient. I am directing two of the six pieces. Growing up, I was pretty divorced from my own like heritage, my own Tunisian heritage. Uh, an opportunity to once again like be in conversation
0: with people is pretty cool um, and somewhat profound, actually.
3: My name is Melis Akash. I am an actor and a playwright. I think what Golden Thread is providing, which I'm very grateful for, is is that space and that agency to tell these stories that are very much missing from the canon of American theater and feel even more necessary right now.
0: Evren Ojikin, the director of new plays at Golden Thread Productions, is directing one of the plays, Rehearsal about three actors who must find a way to rehearse a political play under the watchful eye of the censors.
3: The play that I'm directing for The Reorient this year is called The Rehearsal, and it's by Hannah Khalil, who's a a Palestinian-Irish playwright, and her play Bitter Enders was included in the last Reorient in 2015. And this new play, actually, I believe she was inspired to write it after a panel that she attended with us at Reorient that talked about sort of the kind of things that people have to do, uh, a lot of theater makers have to do in places where censorship is a big problem to be able to produce the kind of political work they're wanting to do. So we actually had a couple of panelists talk about Latino playwrights and actors who dealt with things. There was a lot of conversation around the Belarus Freedom Theater's work, as well as sort of the kind of work that was happening during the Arab Spring. And without giving too much away, Hannah took all of that and created this really beautiful short play that is quite disorienting for the audience, but I think in a really fun way, of what these actors have to do and the sort of the ways in which they have to tie themselves in knots to be able to rehearse this one. Play that is critical of the government. And I'm born and raised in Turkey, so my lens to the play was actually through what's happening in Turkey right now. So I did set the play in Turkey in this production, although. you know, it's really applicable to a lot of places around the world. So mm-hmm. the play in itself doesn't specify a specific location. The music that we use is Turkish, and then, of course, some of the might lens on it is Turkish. In a weird way, sadly, you know, the play could take place in America probably, in, I don't know, in maybe 10 years if things don't change. So we really wanted to make sure that, we were sort of keeping it universal in a way so that our audience could really relate to it.
0: So tell us about the idea behind Reorient Festival. So the
3: festival was started in 1999 by Taraji Diozarian, who's our founding artistic director. And the impulse behind it then, and this is still true now, is that as a you know small theater company that is able to do full main stage productions, it's pretty hard for us to really represent the diversity of the Middle East, the multiplicity of voices, religions, languages, cultures, and that's sort of what we are seeing we do. And so we present, every two years now, present this short play festival that can put together voices that are um, from very different countries, that might have very different perspectives, and also can represent sort of the amazing aesthetic and artistic diversity that is Inherent in the Middle East and also Middle Eastern American playwrights. And so that's sort of the impulse behind Reorient. And what's been really exciting is to see how it has grown. Now we're able to present panels and other conversations with Middle Eastern American artists to contextualize the work as part of the Reorient Forum, which is presented in tandem with the festival. And in a way, our Approach has really grown international because this year seven plays were selected through an international selection process. So we received about 80 scripts from 14 countries Mm -hmm. and ended up with two plays in it that are um, from writers in the UK. So it's been actually really, really exciting. And our honorary mentions include many, many other countries Mm -hmm. as well.
0: This year's festival, it has an impressive list of artists, 38 artists from across the world. Tell us about some of the plays and the artists who will be taking part in the festival mm-hmm. and some of the highlights.
3: I think this year's festival is really interesting. What we found this year, and you know, we go through the selection process and really try to create a selection of plays and artists that represent the diversity of the Middle East, but also speak to what's happening in our world right now. Um, And what's been interesting is this year, a lot of the plays actually take place here in the U.S., and I think that has a lot to do with, given the current political climate, I think a lot of Middle Eastern American writers are reckoning with our place in this country. And what I find really interesting is a lot of the plays are actually quite domestic, as in they're sort of dealing with a lot of family issues, whether it be immigrant families or, you know, American-born families that are dealing with the Middle East in some way. Mm -hmm. The Middle East has come over here, which I find really, really interesting. In terms of some of the plays featured, you know, three of the plays are written by local playwrights, which I'm really excited about. And there are three local female playwrights. The first one is Betty Shamiya, who's a Palestinian-American writer, and our listeners might actually know of her. She's quite well known. And her play, Make No Mistake, is a really interesting one. It sort of juxtaposes the mistress of a U.S. president with uh, the youngest wife of Osama bin Laden and sort of presents their stories in juxtaposition with each other. And sort of there are surprises, I think, for the audience in the way in which those stories lay on top of each other, and you find out how similar the experience of some of uh, those two women were in certain ways. And then uh, Taranji Ghazarian, who I said is our founding artistic director, uh, has written a play called Thanksgiving at Mm Hordobakhshian, and it's a really interesting play. It's actually kind of a lighter comedy, where a lefty Iranian-American finds herself at Thanksgiving dinner with a Trump supporter, And, of course, sort of sparks fly, and they try to figure out a way to talk about their differences. And then the last one, which I think is very golden thread for us, Elizabeth Benedict, has written a play called War on Terror, which is a broad, hilarious, absurd comedy about the Muslim ban and the ridiculousness of such an idea. And it looks at it through the lens of an Arab man whose mother who doesn't speak English and his struggles with TSA agents, but it sort of takes a really, really crazy broad approach to it. So those are just sort of three of the plays Mm -hmm. by the local playwrights. We have Savon Green's play, who's a London-based playwright, uh, called A's for Ali, which looks at two Arab-American couples who are trying to figure out what to name their unborn child, and they have a disagreement about to go with an Arabic name or more traditionally American name and trying to figure out what the right thing to do would be. So as I said, the plays sort of really cover the, you know, really run the gamut in terms of the kind of topics they cover.
0: You picked seven plays out of 80 submissions, and Mm -hmm. you also mentioned that a lot of these artists are... Trying to kind of reflect on what is Mm -hmm. happening in the U.S. today, especially Mm -hmm. under the current administration. Was that also the case with the submissions that did not make it uh, through the final list? Yes.
3: And what's so interesting about this process is, of course, what's been really exciting. I've been managing the sort of selection process for uh, the last three, uh, four cycles actually. And just the quality of the plays have risen so much. Mm-hmm. And I think that both in terms of our outreach, being able to connect with more artists, but also because I think there has been a great deal of work that's coming out of the Middle Eastern American and Middle Eastern communities that is really ready for the prime time, I would say. So there were certainly a lot of plays dealing with a lot of political issues, I would say, whether it be here in the U.S. or in uh, the countries of origin, and really not afraid of the political activism that is very inherent in our work. What's so interesting is when you're putting a festival like this together, it's really hard to come up with the seven plays. So mm-hmm. this year, we actually have even on top of the seven, ten playwrights that we've identified as honorary mentions because their plays and their writing voices were so great they just didn't have to fit into this year's festival, but we are hoping to continue to build relationships with them, and those include Mustafa Kaimak, who's a Kurdish-Turkish playwright, and many others that are coming up. And I'm hoping that either they will be included in the next year's Reorient, they're certainly encouraged to apply, or we will find other ways to engage with their work, because the work that is out there that's happening from Middle Eastern American writers right now is really, really spectacular.
0: So most of these artists who will be taking part in this year's festival, they are based in the U.S. or they are also coming from other places? Because I was thinking about visa restrictions that impose um, on people coming from the Middle East. That is
2: an
3: ongoing problem, yeah. Whenever we have worked with Middle Eastern playwrights or any actors, artists, directors that are coming from the Middle East, visa has always been a huge issue, um, work visas. But um, right now, it's basically almost impossible. We are worried that as we move forward, even... That even if the playwrights are coming from, let's say, the UK, if they are of Middle Eastern descent, we're worried that it will continue to be a problem. We do have a play that's coming up next year that include British artists of Middle Eastern descent that were presenting in the U.S. And I'm, uh, we just went through the application process, but our fingers are crossed that there will not be a problem. But this is an ongoing issue that we've dealt with, and the current administration is not certainly helping.
0: So did you face uh, some of these problems this year for the Reorient Festival? Um, th- this year, none of the
3: artists uh, were coming into the U.S. to do the work. The playwrights that are based in London, we were able to engage them through technology. Mm. So they've been Skyping into rehearsals and we've been doing a lot of conference calls with the artistic teams. But all of the other artists are Mm. U.S.-based and most of the artists, I would say, are are Bay Area-based because Mm. that's sort of where we produce our work. So all the actors and directors are from the Bay Area.
0: When you are planning for such an elaborate Um, festival, I am sure you're thinking of every obstacle that you might face in Mm -hmm. bringing all these people together. Mm -hmm. When you were planning the 2017 uh, Reorient Festival and since the planning started, I believe, two years ago and you've Mm -hmm. been working on it for the past couple of years, when the Trump administration came in did you have concerns about Mm -hmm. what might happen to the diversity of artists that you always have been presenting at Golden Thread Productions. Was that on your mind?
3: Certainly. Uh, right after the election uh, of the whole staff of Golden Thread, we did have a conversation about, you know, what this meant for our work. And what's been really interesting is um, what we find Uh, what we found and continues to be true is that our work hasn't changed a great deal because the work we were presenting by its nature was actually speaking to the kind of challenges that we're facing now. It's a lot more acute, so the context in which we're doing our work has changed. And uh, the need to sort of more directly speak to things might have changed. And I think the awareness of a lot of our audience, that might not necessarily be of Middle Eastern descent. Around some of these issues has changed. What I find really interesting is, whenever we select a festival, I would say the selection is complete about a year before the production is on stage. Because, as you said, a festival of this ambition, uh, sort of a this sort of ambitious presentation, takes two years to plan. So we there is actually a great sort of order of events that we go through, and the selection is complete about a year ahead of time. And there is always a worry that, oh, will these plays be out of date, Uh, especially with the way political things are, the speed with which politics are moving, both here and in the Middle East now. It's always a concern. But what we've found, interestingly enough, is the plays that we're drawn to are still speaking to the things, and the playwrights are very willing to engage with what's happening right now to edit their plays. And whenever you put these plays in the hands of the kind of capable artists, Mm -hmm. actors, designers, and directors we hire, the plays themselves, the way they're presented, is always of the now. And that's, Mm -hmm. I think, something that's really special about live performance in general. So whatever is happening in the world is on the stage because it is a live experience. So that's been um, our experience with this Reorient and continues to be in the sense that our work has been speaking to the now since our founding. And it, uh, it, we haven't had to change the way we program too much, to be perfectly honest, or at all. To be able to um, respond to what's happening right now,
0: and in addition to the plays, there will be a number of panel discussions yes. with artists. So,
3: as part of Reorient Forum, which was added to the Reorient Festival as a way to um, continue to uh, sort of continue and deepen the dialogue that these plays in every inevitably a sort of a spark. We do have talkbacks or con- post-show conversations with the artists involved, and a couple of those which will be included on our website as they come up, um, uh, will include some special guests or, uh, or experts uh, in Middle Eastern culture, Middle Eastern art making, et cetera. The two panels which I'm really excited about that are going to be coming up is the first one is um, Thanksgiving Weekend Saturday, November 25th and it starts at four, is called Centering the Margins, Immigrant Voices and Brown Bodies Claiming the Narrative. What I love about this is it puts Golden Thread's work, which is specifically devoted to the Middle East and Middle Eastern identity, in the context of a larger movement that we're seeing in American theater, especially American theater in the Bay Area, around including voices that have been marginalized for you know, centuries in the center of the narrative. And that panel list is pretty incredible. It's chaired by Roberto Varela of USF, who's an incredible Latino American theater maker and academic. And it includes people like Philip Congatanda, Eric Ting, Lauren Spencer, Eugenie Chan. So it's a really um, diverse group of panelists who are all artists and leaders that are, you know, sort of leading the change on whose stories get told in the Bay Area and by whom. The second one is on um, Saturday, December 2nd, and it starts at 4 p.m. as well. And this is being presented in association with Literary Managers and Dramaturgs of the Americas, mm-hmm. uh, which is a specific organization that um, sort of the umbrella organization for literary managers and dramaturgs who provide amazing work uh, contextualizing the plays for audiences as well as new play development, working with playwrights. And that one is led by Nikisa Ed who's an Iranian-American dramaturg based in the Bay Area and has been acting as our lead dramaturg on the festival. And that one is called Dramaturgs Reorient, Contextualizing the Middle East for American Audiences. So it's going to include a number of master dramaturgs who've had, who've developed and presented work with Middle Eastern American writers in the last few years to Bay Area audiences and the process of developing that work and how... They went about contextualizing the work for the audiences here in the Bay Area.
0: The festival begins on November seventeenth, Evren, yes. and it runs through December tenth. How could our listeners? connect with the festival, get more information.
3: The easiest way to get information is, of course, through our website at goldenthread.org and through there you'll be able to get more information about all the presentations that are included in Reorient, buy tickets, and I always say please sign up for our mailing list because that's the way to sort of stay connected with us or following us on Facebook, which is a Golden Thread Productions. is always a great way to connect with us as well.
1: Evren Ojikin is the director of new plays at Golden Thread Productions. Reorient Festival kicks off on November 17th. For more information, visit goldenthread.org. That's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley.
0: To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com, connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.